Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, and I will be reading all of the verses, verses 1 through 11. Please give your attention to God's Word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This psalm was written, as the title tells us, by King David. And it was written as a celebration of the life of faith for someone who is a true worshiper of the true God, Yahweh. And did you notice the emotion behind the psalm? This is a psalm that needs to be read with a lot of vigor, a lot of exuberance, because David is totally caught up in the joy of serving the one true Lord. He says in verse 9, My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. The word rejoices there in the original Hebrew means literally to spin around due to strong emotions. He's dancing, much like he must have danced before the ark. He's dancing in joy, at least inwardly, as he's writing, as he's singing these words of praise to God. We don't often feel that in our discipleship, do we? You may hear that and think, well, that's fine for David. He was a king after all. Easy for him to rejoice. Really? Think about David. Scriptures tell us that David was chased by King Saul into the wilderness. Saul tried to kill him numerous times. Even after he became king... David fell into a very dark night of the soul where he fell into adultery and then that adultery led to murder. And as a consequence of that murder, his young infant son was taken from him. He died. And then later, another one of David's sons betrayed him and drove him from the throne. How's your life compared to that? David rejoices in his relationship with God in spite of his circumstances. That's what we've been studying in in 1 Peter. 
We're going to see that again and again in 1 Peter, that we rejoice continually in the Lord, not in our circumstances. Well, what does that mean in this situation? And what we find as we look carefully at Psalm 16, even though this was written almost a thousand years before Christ was born, this psalm is all about Christ. And the joy that David is expressing here is all about his relationship with Jesus Christ, looking forward to him as the yet unknown Messiah that the Lord had promised he would send, the one who had crushed the head of the serpent. You remember back in a couple weeks ago when we were looking at the first chapter of 1 Peter, Peter said, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, and this is what he said. He said that they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. All of the Old Testament prophets prophesied of the sufferings of the coming Messiah and of his subsequent, after his sufferings, his subsequent glories. In other words, as we know, looking back from 2,000 years after Christ, his death and his resurrection. The prophets spoke of this, and we saw a couple weeks ago in great detail they spoke of his sufferings and his subsequent glories. But one of those prophets, as we see in Psalm 16, obviously one of those prophets was David. David was a king, but he was also a prophet. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 are the key to the entire psalm. It says there, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Notice he's emphasizing there his whole being. His soul and his flesh. His heart and his body. His whole being, body and soul, rejoices. Why? For you, Lord, will not abandon me to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave. In the Old Testament, it, you had to always interpret that word in context. In some contexts, it meant the grave in the sense that everybody dies. Everybody goes into the grave, and Sheol and some of those situations is portrayed almost like a great monster with his mouth wide open that consumes everybody. Nobody could avoid Sheol, the grave. Sometimes Sheol is spoken of in terms of life after death, and sometimes it's referring to a life of blessing for God's people or a life of, of punishment for those who rebel against God. But so it's kind of a general term. Again, this Revelation through Scripture is progressive. And as you go from Genesis all the way up until Matthew, there's more and more light shed on reality from God's perspective. And at this point, life after death is not entirely clear. Uh, so David did understand that there is life after death. And, and this is what's driving this psalm. Is what is his hope for life after death? And he says that he rejoices in both body and soul because somehow, in a way, he understood, I think, more than we give him credit for. Somehow he understood that both body and soul, he was going to conquer death. And somehow that was tied up in one whose body would not see corruption. Now that's an important point. That's something that the apostles brought out. If you know the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, they referred to Psalm 16 on at least two occasions, and I'm guessing that often... 
through the early church. Psalm 16 was a basic text that the apostles preached from. We have two examples. The most obvious one is Peter himself over in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. As he preached to all those Jews gathered in Jerusalem, I'm going to go ahead and take the time to read part of that sermon because notice how that whole sermon is built on Psalm 16, particularly those two verses that we just read. Here's Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, here's, he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Then Peter goes on to apply that. Psalm, And he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, in Peter's day, they knew where David's tomb was. He said, you can open up that tomb and what you'll find there are the remnants of corrupted bones. His body did decay. His body did see corruption. So Peter goes on to say, being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades or Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. You see the importance of this text to Peter and to the early church. It's one of those prophecies that was exactly fulfilled. That the Messiah, when God sent the Messiah, he would die. He would suffer and he would die, but his body would not see corruption. And Peter says, this is this risen Jesus that we preach. Paul, just to give you another example over in chapter 13 of Acts, just listen to this brief part of one of his sermons. In Acts 13, verse 35, Therefore he, David, says... Also in another psalm, quoting Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. David prophesied of a Messiah who would suffer, die, but not see corruption but he would be raised before his body could decay. That was David's hope. And what I'm trying to help you see this morning is that's why in Psalm 16, David is so full of joy. He didn't base his joy in his circumstances. He based his joy in the hope that is given to David, even a thousand years before Christ was born, because somehow David, by God's revelation, knew that the Messiah would conquer death. And that as the Messiah conquered death, somehow David would participate in that. He too would conquer death. He would be able to rejoice both body and soul. 
We see that in a number of places in David's life. Remember when his infant son died, he grieved until the day his son died, but then he washed his face and walked out and resumed his life, living on with that kind of quiet joy. And the people said to him, why did you grieve while your son was alive and now you're back to normal when your son is dead? And you remember what David said? I will not, he says, I will, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. There's that confidence. He knew that he be, would be re- reunited with his son. And even in that great psalm, Psalm 23, remember how it ends. It ends in that crescendo where he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David had confidence of a coming victory over death, both body and soul. That was the basis of his hope, and that hope was the basis of his joy. Now I want to step back. Having looked, gone to the end of the psalm to look at what the basis of his joy was, I want to go back and look at the gifts that this hope in a resurrected Messiah gave to David. I want to see the gifts. We talk about gifts at Easter, but really when you think of gifts, you think of Christmas, don't you? That's one reason I've always marveled at that, that it's kind of a historical innovation that we put so much emphasis on Christmas in the, in the Christian calendar and let much less emphasis on Easter. Historically, that's not always been the case. And so, you know, the cynic in me says, well, why is that? Well, it's because of we live in a consumer society and it's the gifts. I know when I was a kid, Christmas was a much bigger deal to me as a kid than Easter because, honestly, 15 presents is far better than a chocolate egg. And that's human nature. We understand that. But the gifts that come as a result of Easter are so much better. Christmas, what we celebrate, the incarnation, it's a wonderful thing. But it's, you know, if we celebrate Christmas and then downplay Easter, it's kind of like if you're a baseball fan celebrating a National League championship and then downplaying a World Series championship. You know, it's, it's great, it's important, but really... The incarnation is meaningless without the resurrection. And that's what David is focused on here. I want to point out four gifts that the hope of his own resurrection through the coming Messiah gave to David. The first gift is the gift of confidence. The gift of confidence. Security is a very strong theme all through this psalm. Look at verse 1. He says, In you, Lord, I take refuge. In verse 5, he says, you hold my lot. In verse 8, he says, because he, the Lord, is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And again, in verse 9, he says, my flesh dwells secure. We deeply long for security. We live such easy and prosperous lives that sometimes we take that for granted, how secure our lives are. We desperately need it, though. And the few times in life when either illness or broken relationships or financial calamity threaten that security, then you begin to realize how much we need that security in our lives. Think about how many bad attitudes and bad behaviors there are in your life that are fueled by fear and insecurity. A lot of times counselors, that's what they deal with, is helping people get rid of their fears and insecurities in order to get rid of the bad attitudes and bad behavior. We desperately need security. I saw a statistic that said that Americans spend about 15 to 20% of their annual income on insurance. 
Think about that. 15 to 20 percent of our income is spent on home insurance, health insurance, car insurance, because we long for security. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not anti-insurance. Nothing wrong with that. But it does make you think when the statistics also tell us that Christians give about 2.5% of their annual income to their church or to the kingdom work. Where are we basing our security? Is where we invest our money showing something about where our hearts are? Well, David's security was not in insurance and it wasn't in anything in this world. His security was in the hope of overcoming death and gaining eternal life. And we have so much more basis for security than David did. We live in a day where so much more revelation is given. Christ has come. The Messiah has been revealed. He did live live a perfect life. And then he went to the cross. And how do we know that his death on the cross has any impact on our lives whatsoever? How do we know it has any relevance to us whatsoever? How do we know that we're saved because Jesus died on the cross? We know it because he's raised from the dead. If he hadn't been raised from the dead, then all of his claims would have been proven false. But the fact that he was raised from the dead shows that he is everything he claimed to be. The eternal Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, the one who allowed himself to be crucified in our place, to bear the wrath of God that our sins deserve in our place. We know that God accepted that sacrifice and that he bore the penalty for our sins because God raised him from the dead. And that's the only reason that we can be sure that all things work together for good. We know that when we suffer, if Christ died and paid completely for all our sins, past, present, and future, therefore we know that if we suffer, it's not God getting back at us for something we did wrong. That's not why we go through difficulty. That's how we know that God is working even the difficult things of life, the harshest of sufferings. He's working it together for our good because Christ has paid the price in full. And he has conquered death. That's why Romans 8, it begins with that great refrain, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul ends that great chapter with his crescendo where he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that the cross worked that God's plan was fulfilled, that the cross worked because Christ is risen from the dead. That's the basis of our security. And that's a security that lasts through death and into eternity. The second gift of Christ's resurrection is that we have contentment. And even though David lived before the resurrection, he had contentment in Christ. And David says in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. He's saying basically the Lord is all he needs. And if the Lord is all he has, that's enough. 
And even if he had the entire world, he had the entire universe without the Lord, it wouldn't be enough. His satisfaction is in the Lord alone. He goes on in verse 5 to say, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. In that context, chosen portion means food portion, basically what we would call in the New Testament terms our daily bread. The Lord is my chosen portion. The Lord is my cup. He's saying the Lord satisfies my real needs. The Lord himself does this. David was a man after God's own heart. He was passionate in his desire to grow deeper in his relationship with God. I, I'm, I love the Psalms and I'm also deeply convicted by the Psalms because I, I just admire the passion that David had to be satisfied in the Lord. Listen to the almost embarrassing language of Psalm 63. David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He says in verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 8, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And we're in so much better place than David was. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. Jesus is enough. Jesus satisfies our deepest needs. And therefore, if he is the source of our contentment, then our contentment is not tied to our circumstances. Notice David goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, this is how he looks at his life in this world. He says, you hold my lot. And lot there is used in the sense of property, possession. Notice he goes on to say, These, the lines, you think of boundary lines for a piece of property. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is the language of the conquest of the promised land under Joshua. When the land was all divided up, David is kind of using that imagery to say, my lot in life. In other words, God's allotment to me, my circumstances, my possessions, my family, the things that the Lord has built my life to be, it's good. The lines of my allotment have fallen in pleasant places. Do you remember when they conquered the promised land and they divided up the the land to all the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel? You know, I remember reading that when I was a new believer and feeling sorry for the Levites because the Levites didn't get an allotment. They didn't get to have any land. Do you remember why? The Lord said, because I am your inheritance. And guess who we're supposed to identify from a new covenant perspective? Which tribe we're supposed to identify with? Because the the New Testament scriptures tell us that we are all priests. And since we're all priests, the Lord is our inheritance. Paul understood this. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Later in in chapter 3 of Philippians, he said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Or as David says in verse 11, In your presence there is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures for evermore. 
You know, if that is your inheritance, if that's your joy, if that's where you find your pleasure, if that's where you find satisfaction, is in the Lord himself, then you see why the hope of the resurrection is so important. Because the resurrection means that your inheritance, your treasure, what you live your life for, what satisfies you cannot be taken away for eternity. For eternity. That brings me to the third gift that David refers to. And that's in verse 3 where he talks about our community. Because Christ is risen, we have an eternal community. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David loved the Old Testament church. The Old Testament people of God. He delighted in them. And he calls them there the excellent ones. And in the Hebrew, it says literally the mighty ones, the powerful ones, the nobility. That's the term that was used for the nobility in the land. And what you see happening there is that David is looking at all the people and he's looking then at God's covenant people, his Old Testament church, And he's saying, these are the mighty ones. These are the powerful ones. These are the nobility. He's looking through God's eyes, not through the world's eyes. It reminds me of what uh, Paul said when he looked at the church. He said, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Paul there is talking from the world's perspective. But from God's perspective, the mighty ones, the excellent ones, the powerful ones, the noble ones are the saints of God, chosen and redeemed by the Messiah. We are born again and we're born into an eternal family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ if our hope is in His resurrection. And that is a powerful treasure. It's a great treasure. We complain about our brothers and sisters just like we did with our physical brothers and sisters growing up just like our children complain about each other. But we love each other and we're committed to one another for eternity. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because one of the things I've learned in my short time here in State College is that people are in and out pretty quickly. There's a lot of transition here. Because of of Penn State, you know, people are in for two, three, four, five, six years, and then they're gone. And I know in some situations it could be tempting to say, well, I'm not going to invest a lot of time and effort and energy into relationships with these people because they may not be here very long. But you see how having the hope of the resurrection changes your perspective on that? Because what is, you know, if we spend four or five years together now and we build a relationship and then you're gone for 20, 30, 40 years, guess what? After that we die, we go to, you know, go to heaven, the Lord returns, we have the new heavens and the new earth, we get to spend eternity together. You know, what's 30 or 40 years compared to that? All of a sudden, these three, four, five years, it's worth investing in you. It's worth developing a strong relationship with you because we can build on that towards eternity. That's what it means to be in the family of God. And David loves the church, the church of the Old Testament, just as we love the church of the New Testament. He compares it to the rest of the world in verse 4. You know, again, he's looking from God's divine perspective he says the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings of blood i will not pour out or take their names on my lips he's saying how foolish it is to serve false gods you know the gods of the world cannot deliver them from the grave the gods of this age 
whether it's popularity or health or wealth or power, cannot deliver you from the grave. Matter of fact, many of those things deliver you to the grave. And when we serve those gods, they enslave us and they multiply our sorrows. And notice that when you serve a false god, you have to run after it, David says. They run after false gods. And there's that idea that those false gods cannot satisfy you. You can't ever quite grasp them. You can't ever be satisfied with those false gods. You've got to chase them, chase them all your life. Whereas the God of the Scriptures, the God who comes to us in Christ Jesus, pursues us while we're still his enemies, running away from him. That brings me to the last gift that we have as a result of Christ's resurrection, and that is Christ's constant counsel. Verse 7, David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night my heart instructs me. There's an inner presence, an inner voice that, as he says in verse 11, shows me the path of life. We have a, a GPS system in spiritual terms within us, and it's the Holy Spirit. David literally says, my kidneys instruct me. That's one of those graphic uh, Hebrew ways of talking about the innermost part of our being. My kidneys instruct me in the night. My kidneys often don't say very nice things to me in the night, but thankfully that's not what David is saying here. He's talking about the voice of the Spirit within him applying God's Word to his life. And because Christ is risen from the dead, we know that that presence of the Spirit is with us always, showing us the path of life. You know, Jesus, we have so, we are in, again, I say it again, we are in such a better position than David ever was because of where we are in relation to the covenant. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he specifically said to his disciples in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So these are the gifts that the resurrection of Christ provided for David even a thousand years before it happened. Because David had the same hope of participating in the resurrection of his coming Messiah that we have as we hope in the resurrection of Christ as we know him. Because Jesus is risen, we have the good life. We have confidence. We have contentment. We have a community that we love and will love for eternity and the constant counsel of the Holy Spirit. These are all gifts of the resurrection. And they can be yours if you don't have them today. David, notice all through this psalm, the other thing that strikes me about it is he keeps renewing his commitment. He says, in you I take refuge. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. In verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion. In verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Give your life to him. And he will give you the life that David describes. Real contentment real confidence, constant counsel, and a community that will last forever. And that's what we all really need. That's what we're really all striving for, hungering for, and that's what we worship Him for on this Easter Sunday. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that our hope is the same hope of, as that David had. And Lord, we thank you that we know so much more in the terms of detail of how your salvation has come to, to, to take place at the cross, at the empty tomb, and then one day when Christ comes again, when all will be made perfect and final. Lord, thank you for this hope. This hope in Christ and in his resurrection is what gives us joy that no difficult circumstances can take away. Hear our hearts now as we continue our praise and express to you the joy and thankfulness and adoration that is due to your name because of what Christ has done for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.